Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. If you're coming back, welcome back. And if you are new to the show, it's great to have you. Before we jump into the show itself, several of you have asked me what is up with essentials of emergency medicine. And for reference, if you've never heard of that before, it is the world's greatest medical conference, not just emergency medicine, but just medical conference in the world. Of course, I'm biased, but it's pretty freaking awesome. Put on by Hippo Education. I get to host it, been hosting it for years. And last year, it was canceled as well as the rest of everything last year. But 2021 Essentials of Emergency Medicine is happening May 25th through 27th. So just a couple months away. Now, when you hear that, it's like, oh my God, there's a conference happening. Well, I know what that means. A multi-day Zoom meeting makes me feel like I'm in a skull orchard. I hear you. What this is, it's different than kind of anything else happening out there. I've been involved with the planning and production of this for months. It's going to keep going on for months, right up to the time we start the conference. It's a hybrid, hybrid deal. There are studio filmed talks or lectures. I mean, actual film studios professionally shot in 12 different cities throughout the US and Canada. And they're the five to 15 minute high yield talks that Essentials is famous for. So that's part of it, right? I mean, the talks themselves just look gorgeous, but... You know, you don't just sit there watching video after video for three days. So the whole thing is live hosted. Entire team will be in the theater where it's hosted for three days. Not going to be a live audience. Going to be a virtual audience with interaction. There's going to be live talks that we're going to do in the theater. Live real-time faculty QA, always a personal favorite of mine. And I'll be honest, to fully describe this would take way too long. Just go to the website, essentialsofem.com. But Here is the thing that I wanted to tell you about it. That whole bit of business you just heard was a setup for this, that number one, there's an early bird discount for it. There's always an early bird discount for when you register early. That ends April 4th. It's $100 off the registration. Dude, that's a chunk. But here is the thing. I have asked for this for like almost a decade. Have never gotten one, at least I can recall, a special discount code. Now, I don't get anything from this. This is just passing this on to you. $100 off registration. So if you did the early bird, you know, before April 4th and use this special discount code, that is 200 bucks off the registration. I mean, wiggity, 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 what? So the coupon code or the checkout code is Orman, my last name, O-R-M-A-N. Get 100 bucks off the reg. Go to essentialsofem.com, checkout code Orman. All right. Today's guest, Dr. Jamie Hope. Jamie is an attending emergency physician at Beaumont Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's like Beaumont, Beaumont, like Hugh Beaumont from Leave it to Beaver. But Beaumont Hospital, Detroit, Michigan. Jamie is the author of Habit That, How You Can Health Up in Just Five Minutes a Day. Health Up. I mean, who don't want to health up? Health it up, baby. You got it. Jamie teaches the behavior change and motivational interviewing courses to future physicians at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And today we're going to talk 
about cognitive reframing. And this interview was recorded a few years ago. And I will say that it has really stuck with me because so much of what we do on this show really comes down to cognitive reframing, shifting perspective for a higher quality experience or higher quality interaction for whatever you're doing. But I'll stop the description there because I want to get to it. Our conversation with Jamie Hope. When we use the word reframing, what do we mean? There's a lot of different ways to look at something. Take the example, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, that kind of stuff happens all the time. You can choose how you want to look at it. So you can just decide that this person is a complete ass. They're inconsiderate. They're trying to ruin your day and all of those things. Or you could consider a different option. What if their family member was in the hospital? They're very sick. They're rushing to get there. They're afraid they're going to miss their loved one's last breath. So instead of just trying to irritate you, they're just focused on where they want to go. Either way, you're never going to know the answer unless you plan on chasing this person down like a psychopath and asking them <laughs> and, and possibly having the authorities called. But where you're empowered is you can choose to decide how you want to look at this event that happened. Either way, the same thing happened. You still got cut off. But if you want to frame it in a way like this person's a they're out to ruin my day and, and let it ruin your day, then you can choose that. Otherwise, you can choose to see maybe they have something else going on in their life, put it in a completely different frame and decide, you know, maybe if I take it a different way, you're looking at it in a more compassionate way, like, gee, I hope they get there in time to see their family member. It takes that energy and angst off of you about being cut off. You're not changing the event. You're just changing the way that you are choosing to look at it. It's funny you mentioned the traffic aspect because just a couple <laughs> days ago, I was pulling out of the road that I live on and this guy was right behind me gunning and gesticulating and giving me the finger <laughs> and- The thumbs up finger? The. The well, thumb, oh, the, mm -hmm. the not other thumbs, finger. Not thumbs up, doctor, <laughs> not thumbs up. And, and there's traffic. It's not like I can pull into traffic. He's really running to go. And so there's a gap and I'm able to, to get across the street onto this other road. And he just like peels out and goes so fast, like hyper aggressive. And my first yeah. thought was, you're a d and you've yeah. got anger problems and I want nothing <laughs> to do with you. But the question is, do I want to carry that with me the rest of the day? Do I want that guy to ruin my day? I have no idea what's going on with him. Everybody's got their own story. Everyone's got a struggle. Everyone's got an agenda. Probably he's just impatient, but does his impatience need to impact what I have going on. It's like, hey man, that's just the way that that guy acts. There was no real harmful effect on me other than a little bit of road rage building up in me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how I responded to that, that was up to me. I could yes. have been giving him the finger. I mean, like, hey, let it go. You have no control over what that guy does. Move on. Yeah. Do you want to carry that all day? I don't know. When, my, when I got the call that they were coding my nephew, I'm... I don't even know how many people I cut off because I didn't care. I wasn't paying attention. All I was My only line of sight was what is in front of me and how quick I can get there. So I'm sure a lot of people thought I was an asshole that day. So you, you just never know. And do you want to take on this guy's insane middle finger energy? Hell no. I have better things to do with my day. So for patients, mm -hmm. for a lot of people, when they come into the emergency department, it is the worst day of their life. It doesn't seem like it to us, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, here's my next patient. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got 10 other patients I'm thinking about, but for them, this is a huge event. They don't know if their little bit of chest pain they're having is a heart attack where they're going to be permanently disabled or dead. And they're freaking out about how they're going to 
pay their hospital bill and what they're going to do and are they going to die and who's going to take care of their kids. And they have all these emotional things in the background. Then we stick them out in a waiting room where people are coughing all over them. And then we finally get them back to a room. And so they've got all this anxious energy built up. And some people, that energy comes out of them like a total asshole. So when you're in that situation and you're engaging with somebody who's clearly hostile, you know, you walk in the room and they're just fuming, you know, and something has pissed them off. Mm -hmm. It's either the weight or so they thought somebody slighted them or was rude to them or whatever. And you walk and you just feel it. You feel it. And the easy reaction is, hey, man, I don't have time for your bullshit. I just need to get in. I need to get out. Let's just take care of this. So how would you guide somebody who was in that? You're kind of, you're on their shoulder. Three inch Jamie Hope is <laughs> on their shoulder. You're giving this advice. What would you say? Just like being cut off in traffic, you can't change whether or not this is going to happen. People are going to come in as they come in. So you can choose to escalate with them, really take on their energy and their drive and ramp up your whole sympathetic system and get pissed off and let it irritate you. And damn it, I'm here to treat your ass, not kiss your ass and get all indignant. You can get fully righteously indignant about this. Like, can you believe this guy? Or because you're seeing this patient and this encounter is going to happen anyway, you can choose to reframe it. So you're looking at this person instead. You don't know what led up to this anger, this frustration, all the things who they are. Maybe they've got other situations going on at home. You have no idea. But instead of framing them in the you're a giant dude frame and slapping it on the wall, you could <laughs> stick a frame around them and say, this person, it's the worst day of their life. How would, I mean, Rob, how do you feel on the worst day of your life? Do you feel like happiness and rainbows and telling everybody great things? No, of course not. You're having the worst day of your life. And if we're able to step back and be the objective, compassionate professional that we are and look at them through this frame and see that, you know, the way that they're acting, it's just all part of the hospital process. We're able to separate ourselves from that emotional reactionary place that we like to be in and just be present with them as their physician. And this comes up so many times. And I oh, can yeah. Every shift. Yeah, I can think of my last shift. There was a patient's mom was having a stroke and I sat down with them. I explained everything that was happening from start to finish. I will tell you, I explained it excellently. Nailed it. Of course you did. <laughs> I walk out of the room. Drop to the mic. <laughs> I dropped the mic. I got four or five patients to dispo. It's around the end of my shift. I'm super tired. And the nurse comes out and says, hey, they have questions. They're not really sure what's going on. And- <laughs> Can you believe like, the audacity? The audacity. I'm so busy. But for them to understand what's going on with their family member, more important than the effort it takes me to explain again. And a couple things on that. Number one, I own that explanation that I did not do sufficiently or slowly enough or ask for questions at that time. If they don't understand it, that's on me. 100%. No matter how epically amazing your explanation was, if it didn't get through to the other side, it's not amazing. And when they understand it, that helps them to frame what's happening, to put everything in perspective. I need to reframe my response from irritation to this is actually my responsibility and mm -hmm. I need to do this and it's important to them. And then they need to actually just have a frame to put things in context. 
yeah, they don't know, is their loved one going to be permanently disabled? Are they going to die? So they're trying to fit this into their scheme of what's going to happen next. How is this going to look and feel for us? So they don't care how amazing you are. They want to know what's going to happen next in their lives. Another situation where reframing really critical in the arc of someone's life or death is when we talk about comfort measures, you know, make someone comfort measures only where a family comes in. I mean, sometimes they're on boards like, look, let's just allow a natural death and not flog things, make them suffer. Usually it's like, what are you doing? You're you're doing nothing. And we're thinking this person's clearly dying. What they need is just some aggressive comfort care and reframing that conversation to bring that family on board, that's a challenge. And people don't necessarily even understand what that means. They think, "What? so you're doing nothing and putting it in perspective for them. So you're framing, we care about your loved one's quality of life. These are the many things that we're able to offer in order to respect that quality of life. And I actually had the flip situation once, Rob. I had a family bring in a family member, and they were actually afraid that we were going to do all of these things and be very aggressive. And they were being a little cagey when I was first getting the history, and I didn't understand why. And then so when I brought up the thing of comfort measures, they were so relieved. They were so afraid that I would think that they didn't care about their loved one, that they didn't want anything. They were afraid to ask for just comfort measures. It was the craziest thing. And so once we got that, we were able to make, I mean, it was this beautiful, dignified situation. They actually, I kept them down there. They passed, you know, the patient passed away during my shift. We had a room with dim lighting. It was very comfortable. Every, You know, it, it, we ended up making this beautiful situation out of it. But because they were afraid to ask until I put it in a frame as these are one of your options, it, it was a really great experience. I'm going to need a little therapy right now. I'm going to need some help because, <laughs> because there's one particular situation where I can't get over it. <laughs> I cannot get over the internal eye roll, and I am sure it comes out as an external eye roll. And that is either the patient or the family member that is loud and demonstrative and catastrophizes it. You can hear them down the hall. Sometimes it's the forced, over exuberant retching. Where they're filling the MSS basin with noise. <laughs> <laughs> or the splinter is worse than a gunshot wound to the neck. The coping skills are set to zero. I find that so vexing. I don't know what to do. So, well, this can be confessionals, Rob, because I confess <laughs> that the status dramaticus is my kind of my, my trigger to assume, oh my gosh, this person is so irritating. They don't, there's nothing wrong with them. I am 100% with you on the eye roll situation. Those are my hardest ones to reframe. So, but we're ER people and we love a challenge, don't we? I don't love that challenge. <laughs> so you don't want me to refer all those to you? I love a complicated laceration or yes. maybe a difficult diagnosis, but nah, a catastrophizing, demonstrative, air vomiting patient. <laughs> I find challenging. Let me give you an official prescription that says you don't have to love all of your patients. Ooh, freedom. Keep going. First of all, recognizing it. So you're already at, I don't know, step one or two or 12. You recognize that this is the problem. So the hardest thing to do, unlike, you know, the tragic stroke patient, it's the worst day of their life. That's a little bit easier to reframe. But this is the way that this person is experiencing the worst day of their life or maybe if you, they're like some of the people I see, it's the 57th worst day of their life that year. They have an illness, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's something going on, and just being overly dramatic, it, it turns out, is not protective for diseases. 
And so they actually can still have something going on. So those are the ones you take a deep breath, make sure you've had your coffee for the day, and just try and frame them in a way that they are here for help. You might not be willing to give them the kind of help they think they need, i.e. Dilaudid, but you can find other ways to at least connect with them and get a good history and physical just for your own sanity and job satisfaction. We had Joe Polish on the show uh, a little while back talking about addiction. Your natural reaction is 100% irritation. But when you understand what's going on with that addict, or at least a little bit of how they got there, the meter can start to move towards compassion. You can still be irritated. In fact, if you're not, you're not human. But having compassion, like even a little bit of compassion, goes such a long way. No kid's like, gosh, I can't wait to grow up and be addicted to meth and burn my face trying to cook some. Nobody wants to be there. And so in the throes of their addiction, they will lie, cheat, and steal to get whatever they need to do to get that next fix. But the most interesting thing when he said, addiction is a treatment. And I thought that I misheard. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Addiction needs treatment. All of a sudden, a light bulb came on. Oh my God, addiction is a treatment for whatever pain they're experiencing. In his case, and I encourage people to go back and listen to that podcast. I won't give the whole thing away. It was brilliant. And But just, you know, childhood trauma, some other type of thing, you know, an initial painful injury, and then they get hooked on these things. And all of a sudden, you're able to see the person behind this behavior. And Rob, by no means am I saying give them drugs. I mean, you don't give blood thinners to a patient who's bleeding to death. I'm not advocating giving narcotics to somebody who is addicted. But to see the person that they were and how they became like this, I have found so many people are more than willing to tell me their origin story. I sit down in a chair, treat him like a human being and ask him, how did you get here? And this one guy, I mean, he he was a you know fairly elderly guy and he'd been doing heroin for so many years. And he, you know, he told me his whole story. It was fascinating. And he looked at, he's like, most doctors don't treat me like I'm a human being. He was very surprised that I was treating him well, which is kind of sad. But he said, I don't want to be doing heroin. I don't want to be here. He had endocarditis and infections. He's, I, he's, I don't want this. I'm stuck and I don't know how to get out of this. And I was able to see this man that everybody else is like, oh, he's just a worthless junkie. He had been, you know, fairly wealthy and now he was homeless. And to see the human being behind that, Robert, it's honestly, it's been a game changer for me. It's been a career changer. I get chills when I think about number one, how I was at this for most of my career. But number two, and this was the last phrase of that Joe Polish interview was, you can be the first domino in this person healing, be the first domino. You think you're just going through the motions and 999 out of a thousand times, you are just going through the motions because that person's A, not ready to quit, or maybe it's not the right environment or whatever. But for that one person, you just change somebody's life and put them on a different path just by even a little bit of compassion. It's like the butterfly effect, what you do in that ED. To this point, we've been talking about reframing external interactions, putting things in a different perspective, just a subtle tweak in mindset that can completely change an interaction. But what about reframing yourself, specifically your job? Let me ask you this. How would you describe what you do? More specifically, how do you feel about what you do? Well, Jamie Hope was feeling pretty burnout, just kind of going through the motions at work and asking yourself, what am I even doing here? What? is my job. And answering that question in a way that reflected what she wanted her job to be, it was a subtle reframe 
has increased her job satisfaction because now she knows what she's doing and more importantly, why she's doing it every day she goes to work. I have decided that I have four roles in my job. So number one, I am a public safety officer. I ask my patients about seatbelt use, about condoms, about guns in the home, about violence. Are they being a victim of human trafficking, domestic violence? Are they safe at home? Are they exposed to Ebola? Remember that whole exciting drama? I might be this person's only contact with the medical system. I remember this mom showing me a video of what she thought her son was having a mild seizure. He was not. But the video was taken with him in the front seat of her car (laughs) while going down the road, and he is too. And I was like, I was trying not to have my own seizure just watching this thing. So first we talked about, you know, this behavior we're seeing is not a seizure. Then are you having a hard time affording a car seat? Oh, no, I have a car seat. Okay. Imagine he's in that front seat and all you did was just hit your brakes really hard because a dog ran out in front of you. What's going to happen to him? Was that kid a trauma that day? Of course not. But was he going to be someday? It's pretty likely. So to be able to take on that role as public safety officer, I hope that I... Save that kid's life by making sure she understood the importance of him being in a car seat every single time. So I think that's a really important role. All right. So number two, I am a resuscitationist. So that is the badass part of our job, Rob. That's the stuff we all love. We're intubating people. We're coding people. We're bringing people back from the dead. We're super cool. This is the kind of stuff we high five each other. These are the stories we want to tell around the dinner table. That's an easy part of our job to accept. And it's it's very fun. Number three, I am a diagnostician, and I absolutely love this part of my job. So by getting a good history and physical, by getting all of the data points, getting input from family members, oftentimes we can come up with something that is wrong with someone. And if you look at studies greater than 90% of the time, the diagnosis that we give that patient in the ER is going to continue to go forward. So they get admitted to the hospital, and that's going to stick. At that point, they're just treating what you gave them. And maybe the next treatment team isn't going to dig a little deeper and say, well, maybe this is a PE or is this some kind of occult malignancy that nobody thought about? So I take the weight of that responsibility as an opportunity. All those years of school and nerding out on different diagnoses and being the cool place in ER where we get to see all the different specialties, it's so much fun. And lastly, Rob, I am a patient advocate. I am the one in front of the patient. I have now, of course, expertly resuscitated them, diagnosed them, mic drop like a boss. And now (laughs) I am the one who knows what they need. In a lot of situations, I am calling somebody whether to admit the patient or get a consultant to come in. So yes, Captain Consultant, you need to get off your boat and come in and see this patient because they need X, Y, and Z because I figured it out. So on their behalf, I am definitely willing to go to the mat. That's a real story. When Jamie was working in a little ED, she tried to get a consultant in who didn't want to come in off their boat. Literally off their boat, yes. Literally off their boat. You got that doctor to come in off their boat. Actually, the funny thing is I got the surgeon to come in. It was getting the anesthesiologist off the boat. So it did work. So so that's kind of the four corners I put around the frame of my career. So I'm a public safety officer. I'm a resuscitationist. I am a diagnostician, and I am a patient advocate. And this doesn't mean that every shift is magically rainbows and sparkles, because, I mean, we all still have shitty days. But that's how I see my job and my role, and it makes it feel like I'm doing something useful. And we know that in terms of job satisfaction, feeling like you're doing something that actually makes a difference is so huge. 
If you're truly invested in that job, ask yourself, am I the owner of my job or am I renting my job? You are the owner of this. You own it. And how are you going to own it? And Jamie just talked about her four things, being a public safety officer, a resuscitationist, diagnostician, a patient advocate. I don't know. Does that sound too aggro? I'm the owner, not the renter of my job. When you have that ownership of what you're doing, then the power is with you and you get that sense of satisfaction in your job. A lot of times you feel like things are being done to you. Here's another new initiative. Now we have to ask you about Ebola. Now we have this new patient satisfaction thing. Now we have five more mandatories, which is some computer online bullshit quiz that we have to take about fire safety and how to use the fire alarm. And so, so many times we feel like this is stuff is being done to us. You can get into that renter mentality. And that's so if you're renting a house, people are just aren't as gentle with it. You're making more holes in the wall. You're spilling shit on the carpet. And you're like, well, whatever. It's not my problem. But when you are truly the owner of your career, you want it to be amazing. You're going to take care of your own house because you paid for it. You put a lot of time into it. And so to really take that on as your career. Yes, some other things are going to happen. You're going to have to do some repairs and maintenance, but it's just a completely different level of satisfaction. I want to be satisfied with my job. Damn it. I worked really hard to get here. I want to close up with your advice to first year medical students. What we're talking about is what it's really like to practice medicine. And some of the things we say, they ain't pretty, but it's what happens. And when you're in first year medical school, I mean, you're learning all of this basic science and you're just trying to be a sponge for all this information. Trying to pass the test. That's what they care about. I must pass this next test. Yes. Is this going to be on the test? <laughs> yeah. Yes. They did. You know, they got to get the grade, got to get to the next step, got to get there, got to get there. And we laugh because of course that was us so many years ago. So the advice, and it surprises them a little bit when I'm like, none of your patients give a fuck if you know about the Krebs cycle. They're surprised. I'm like, please assume all of your patients are just going to assume that you're a huge science nerd and already know all that stuff. So they don't care and they are not impressed in the slightest. What they care about is, do you care? Did you listen to them as a human being? Because there is nothing so satisfying to a person, no matter who you are, to be listened to and acknowledged. And yes, that will be on the test. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you want to subscribe to Stimulus in your podcatcher, you can use pretty much any podcatcher you want. If you happen to use iTunes as your podcatcher, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, my friends. Be well and keep on rocking.